Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking corn rootworm. In our spotlight, we'll take a look at why farmers are protesting in Europe. Ag History Minute, we'll talk leap day and what a leap year has to do with weather. Cool beans, that's corny. We'll have some current events and we'll wrap it all up with a field good Friday. With me today are Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. Dynamic duo today, just me and you, Todd. I'm excited. It's going back to a lot of dynamic duos, Matt. That's right, Batman and Robin. But yep, Captain Hook and, and Smee. Smee. Yep. This um. goes <laughs> all the all the duos of Bat, uh, Superman and Superboy. I don't know. Superman. They were, they were a duo. He Captain, didn't have a, a duo. He Captain was, America he, and Bucky. That was one. Really? Yep. I'll be Bucky. That sounds right. good. Sweet. Captain America. I'm picturing Bucky like the Badgers mascot, and it is not like <laughs> yes, that. Right? It, is, it is not, no. That would be great. Uh, I thought Captain America was Bucky. What's Captain America's name? Uh, Steve Rogers. Okay, Steve. Right. Yeah. No, Bucky was his buddy. And then... In like the they were in the military together and... Well, so in the original comic books, like Bucky was like a kid. Okay. So it was a little weird that this kid was fighting in World War II with a grown man, but, <laughs> you know, details... How young of a kid? What like, was acceptable? Like teenager? Okay. Like, not 18, though, I don't think. Like Shazam style? Kinda. That's kind of a deep cut for this audience. Yes. Yeah, well, anybody yeah. knows who Shazam is, unless they've seen He's the two movies recently. Basically a kid that got superpowers. Like, turns into an adult. Yeah. yeah. Super being. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, we're here. It's March 1st. Uh, March is definitely uh, not in like a lion as of today. But no, we'll it is in like a lamb. So yes. what does that mean then, Matt? Well, I feel like there's a couple possibilities. Either we're going to go out like a lion or we're going to go out like a lamb. So be in like a lamb, <laughs> out like a lamb. Yeah. Uh, so February like, is quite the February. Yes, we've we've been riding the roller coaster it, this week in, in terms of weather. Yes. We had the, what, 50 degree drop between Tuesday and Wednesday. And there With is snow. There is still snow on the ground as of right now. But today, I think uh, we're looking at what a high of 50, 50s and so tomorrow 60. So, yeah, it's probably not long for this world. But I, I, I like the moisture aspect of of getting snow. But right, uh, we need more of that. So yeah. hopefully, part of the march out like lion is some more moisture at an appropriate time. That's helpful. Yes. And not in May, where right. we can't plant. Yeah, we don't need a deluge, but uh, some some light rains or a little bit more snow even would be fine, just to kind of give us something to slow soak into our soils. Asking farmers just all over if they say so remember like river levels, creek levels, and all that stuff, kind of where they were in the past. And in general, the consensus is this is low as they remember. Yeah. Like a lot. So not just say like rivers and lakes, but not many of them notice that. But like the Fox River, you don't really necessarily notice it's much lower. But any creeks or streams are noticeably lower for this time of year. Yes. Yeah. It is not a, not a excess moisture situation at all in most places. I haven't seen anything on the Mississippi lately about where that's at, but I imagine it's got to be down. Pretty good. Especially that'll open up soon again, so I'm sure we'll hear about it. Yeah. 
So yeah, no, it's um, basketball season. March Madness will be upon us sooner rather than later. So that's the best. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, no one will pull a fire alarm during <laughs> during any, a any of the basketball games. Right when the Badgers tie it up. Right, fire alarm. Weird. No shenanigans there. Yes, whatsoever. They said a bunch of people. They like restarted the game before most of the fans were even like back in. Like people were still kind of filing in. And sure, it was like another halftime. So it'd almost be like hockey, where you have like three periods. It was kind of like that. Yeah, that's. It's got to be weird. Yeah, and I can't imagine there was anything like scheduled that they would have issues going up against. But I don't know. Right. It's not like it's a tournament where oh crap now we have to get this game done before the next before, before yes you're game, right. or, game like next they game are starts, a, but yeah a, yeah yeah and we're getting to like the fun boys and girls state tournaments and that's always a really really exciting for the teams involved and the people involved yeah yeah I mean it's a big deal for those teams that get to go down to well I guess the boys get to go down to Madison the girls they still do it I think Bay, they're think, in GB right? still yeah. yeah. So get to take the trip to the... Which would still be a cool venue. Right. To the big dance. Yes. I think we can still call it a big dance at the state level. Yeah, I don't think they're going to... The the collegiate level, it is definitely the the big dance. But uh, yeah, it's always a good time of year. gives us something to watch. uh, Something something to root for in the the in-between times here as... You know, professional sports kind of gets out of the lull that we're in, and things really start ramping up again. So, yeah, speaking of ramping up, uh oh, are we? We can't use snowmobiles. No, uh, no, I was going right into our topic. Oh, oh okay, it's right. going right into our topic, man. I thought we were going to be doing something dangerous outside, but no. All right, we can get into the topic. Sure. <laughs> Well, we have, yeah, speaking of ramping up, soil sampling in February. Yeah, hey, we did that. We did that now. We we, can say. What, like 200 samples? Oh, yeah, it was like a couple thousand acres in general. So it was a good. No, it was not what you expect. Like, not on the bingo card for anybody. Yeah, I think we talked company wide if anybody sampled in February. And yes, that was a new thing for us, which is good. I I think a lot of like tillage in February, certain guys tried. Yeah, tillage, manure. Hauling manure. So, like in, injecting manure, I should say. Right. Like, Proper yes. manure has been hauled in February before, yes. but injecting manure in February is is not a commonplace thing. So yeah, no, it's been an interesting interesting year, and um, it may impact our topic. Yes. So well, let's get into that. So we're talking corn rootworm today. What do we got? Yeah, corn rootworm. So talking about kind of history, what to what to do about corn rootworm kind of where this pest has gone it's it, this pest has been around for a long time and it's been kind of always a problem for farmers not always but since we've been growing corn we've had to deal with corn rootworm so th- this topic is kind of a precursor to next week on March 6 I will be speaking for the PDP dairy signal so that is the professional dairy producers PDP, no W. No W. No, no more flying the dub. So now they are, yeah, I, th- I think they still care about the W, but well, they want to be, but... they want to be, you know, more Midwest or nationwide. So they are the professional dairy producers, their dairy signal. And that, that um, we're going to be talking corn worm and go in depth on it 
and today we're also talking about corn room to kind of talk through all the the problems that this pest can be and what do we got to do about it and how do we manage around it and how this pest is a tricky one because it seems to manage around us and have us figured out right yeah no they're they're tricky little guys and gals so yeah rootworm beetles can be traced back centuries into central america and they were first they weren't detected in the united states until the 1800s which again, that's we weren't growing all that much corn back right. then. Right, when Wisconsin was predominantly wheat, that right, wouldn't have been an issue. Right, and basically, kind of the first detected time was in 1909, when it was found they created noticeable amount of de- damage in Colorado corn fields. So that was kind of the first. I'm sure they just noticed all their corn falling over, and was like, "What's going on here?" And by the mid-1900s, they were known to create significant amount of damages in Nebraska corn and spread eastward quickly. So present day, this pest causes billions, that's the B, big B, billions worth of damage to corn profits across the entire country. I get, I got to imagine that must have been rough, like trying to figure that out. Like, why is my corn all falling down? Because you see the beetles. But you don't necessarily probably understand the fact that those beetles were larvae under the ground, like eating the roots of the plant. So you're like, ah, oh, it's got to be these beetles. But how are they getting, like, do they burrow underground and eat the roots? Like, what's going on? Well, right. And you wouldn't have known. You'd have just blamed it on, like, corn on corn at that point, probably. Like, right. oh, this is like, some disease because I, gotta... I did corn on corn that if I rotate, it doesn't happen. And yeah, that. I, this pest is probably a, a tricky one of, uh, and probably the main reason why we rotate, yeah, and and why be, because that is the best mode to to stop them. But if you go back to the origins, I'm sure that's part of the reason. And that was always to break pest cycles was rotation, and for nutrient cycling. But I'm sure corn rootworm was a big one. Like, yeah, I want to do corn on corn, but well, my only choice here is to rotate. And you wonder too, like, because wasn't necessarily uncommon to fallow land on occasion like if that would have stymied them too they went back to corn and they were kind of still around potentially and, after that and it would have slowed them that's it would have slowed for sure. them but yeah yeah so yeah what about wisconsin where do we yeah so this has been a also a problem place here in wisconsin basically in kind of the late 20th century have been st- steadily becoming more and more of a problem. Northern corn rootworm is kind of more of a predominant problem, tailing about two-thirds of the beetle population, and the rest being one-third of western corn rootworm. That's a tricky number because I, I feel like that's right and wrong at the same time. It just it sort of depends on the year, the field maybe, but it does seem when you got a lot, of, like the northerns are a little bit smaller and... When you get them, it just seems like there's a whole bunch in that, you know, in that ear and everything. Yeah. So I guess for our listeners, the northern is the green. They're smaller and green uh, across their whole body. Western is the yellow with the stripes on its back. And then southern, which we do every once in a while see, is uh, got spots. So it's a series of spots on its back. So the, the main ones we see, though, are the northern and the western, like you said. Um, and you can get both 
in the same field. Oh, yeah, it's a not, lot of time. It's not a like, oh, you get one or the other. No, like, this is the inclusive club. They're both yeah. usually there, yes. And the, the Southern's also called the spotted cucumber beetle. So I know that one can also be a pest. I've even seen that one like sweeping hay fields before. Yep. I've gotten some northern or some western sweeping hay fields two at times, but the, these are pests that can be in different areas. And but most of the time, yeah, we when you get you see both, and they're pretty they're they're small. They're about the size of like a pencil eraser in size. Not not you can easily see them with your naked eye. Oh yeah. Do you like when you find a mat? Do you like squashing them? Yeah, a lot of times it'll be like flitting between the corn plants, and like you'll either see them crawling on the corn plant, or I'll get like that. Yeah, see, kind of flying through the air and try to swat them or, yeah. or grab them. And um, usually to train scouts, too, I'll try to catch one or two, and that can be, sure show them. Can be hard because they're they will keep moving, and you got to really kind of hold a tight fist to to keep them in in line. But yeah, I I will. Uh, most pests, I will try to make what little effort I can. <laughs> I mean, in the grand scheme of things, squ- us walking through a field squashing them is not going to do anything no, for the populations. No. But it it's makes almost us feel like better. which I don't really like popping zits all that much. I don't get like that. But this reminds me of popping zits. But I enjoy this more. They've got a they've got a good squish to them. There's usually a little bit of kind of that meaty feel, and then there's that. Yeah, they're just really uh, especially if. The, depending on the size, the westerns are usually more fun to squish than the northerns. It's a little bigger, a little bigger. Yeah. So one of my other good funs. I, do you ever walking through cornfields and you get those big yellow garden spiders? Yeah. That yep. you come up on out of nowhere. Usually they're right in front of your face. Yeah. Yeah. If I do come up on one of those in the field, also has a lot of corn rootworm beetle. It's a lot of fun. Oh, you'll feed them. Oh yeah, you yeah. can like, ch- like basically grab them and throw them into the web, and then they get stuck in there. And then I've had it only a couple times where. The spider will actually move and start, like start going after him right away. So that's usually a, a fun. Uh, it doesn't really. So you don't eat them, but you feed them <laughs> yes. the spider. I've never <laughs> ate them. No, I, and I don't plan on eating them. Have you ever ate them? Do not they on purpose. In, not ever. Oh yeah, sure. Walk cornfields with your mouth closed. Yes. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, that's the beetles. They usually come out in a like kind of late July to August time. We usually look for them in silks. And what is tricky with them is it seems like since we started scouting these twenty years ago, the time of emergence has gotten a lot bigger. I mean, I remember you you just basically find them in August, yeah. and you you kind of didn't really see them in July, and then in September too, you'd rarely see them. Now there is times we'll see them in July. It's not as rare of an occasion. And then in September, I've had it like on corn silage where it's chopped and you can actually see the beetles like on the stalks and stuff. But the most important scouting timing is when the females are pregnant because those are the ones that are going to lay the eggs for the following year. And that's typically in in mid-August time. So that's the important part, that egg-laying period of late July through August, kind of watching and, and scouting and Basically, once you get over three-quarter beetle per plant, that is the threshold that next year you will have a problem. So it, that scouting's got, you know, because there's, you usually got to kind of open the silks and you see them fly away. 
But most of the time, you do kind of know, like, when it's threshold. Yeah. It's it's oh, yeah, a little the, bit easier. Will, to, it, it's usually fairly evident, like I said, that flitting between. Right. Like, if you're if you're seeing it enough to, like, take notice of it, right. then you, you're right. probably in a situation where it's going to be an issue. And most of the time, that almost feels like, you know, first year corn going into second year, if you're scouting that, usually there's, there can be times where you need the traded year on the third year or excuse me, the second year, and there's times where you don't. So that's a good time to scout. Whereas then when you get in like third-year corn going into fourth or like that later fourth on, most of the time you you need the traits. Like you can, yeah. they're there. So that's kind of like that second year, going to be second-year corn. So first year going to second year, first year corn to scout and seeing how many beetles you get and tracking that is a very good timing. So back in the day, man, when we started – um, when I first started with Jeff in 06, there was going to be like an insurance policy. He was working with like an insurance, an insurance company is contacted like a whole bunch of crop consultants and was going to have this like corn rootworm insurance. Okay. So BT, BT traits weren't quite as common yet. And there, there were going to be basically like you'd scout the field and had, there was this very regimented scouting protocol and then you'd either certify it like not you know no no worry for corn root worm or not and then they'd get this insurance that they didn't have to put an insecticide on or kind of any treatment and then that following year if they did have beetles insurance or if they had corn root worm damage and problems the insurance would actually would cover, cover it, it. Hmm. um it it didn't I, I don't even know that it ever went to any like farmers doing it, it was just a really cool idea though sure. that you could actually have like kind of integrated pest management teamed up with like an insurance, insurance. behind it yeah. of like, nope, we know if th- this way there's a good chance you won't have the problem and here's the sort of savings. It did feel like, one, I know the problem was like farmers didn't really want to pay for it. Like it was hard to get enough, like to to decide what the cost of the insurance would be. It was very difficult. So, sure. Yeah. But so scouting is still extremely important, extremely valuable to see the other part of that timing is is you want to watch for silk clipping. Right. They're a, they're above and below ground pests. Yes. Because the larvae, the, the egg laying part, has to do more with the the root clipping and the the below ground initially. And that's one type of damage you see. And that's when you have the corn plants that are tipping and it looks like, you know, wind damage almost at times. You're like, wait, I don't remember us getting strong winds. Why is that all that corn leaning? But then the above ground aspect is if you get enough beetles, and that's where I think that the early seeing them earlier in like July and other times, right. like even before the silks are there, isn't great because if they're going to start clipping silks, they're there before the, right. the, the buffet is even put out. Yes, and so, then they seem to yeah. just like really cr- go nuts on that buffet, right? They're and like, eat them silks, yeah. Piece of silk, ooh, piece of silk, and they just keep going. Yeah, no, it's. That is the the down the big, one of the biggest downsides to this particular pest is they can they can hit you below and they can hit you above. What what's you know you're big into comic book lore, Marvel movies. <laughs> like, is there any other double headed monster type of thing in any sort of folklore? Man, what would you, well, if you equate? Get into Greek, Greek mythology. You've got the Hydra where you cut one head the off. Hydra. And That's, one this grows is back. the Hydra. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It almost has a feel too of a you know because it. It starts underground, 
you know right and then um, it works its way and then comes above and it's hits you both ways almost. which in that way is like tremors remember that movie from the tremors the, no i the, don't remember the 90s kevin bacon uh, there were these like worms that would come out of the ground and eat people and animals okay um but yeah no the <clears throat> the below and the above ground aspect of this uh, makes it very difficult to really manage this pest because it can it can hit you in multiple ways. And so even if the larvae, you know, you have the traits, the below ground traits, your protection on the roots is doing a good job, they still might hatch out and start clipping silks. And, and unfortunately, they're not the only silk clippers either. And sometimes I, it's a party right. in the field is like, okay, we've got rootworm that are clipping silks and then say like a Japanese beetle moves in and now you've got multiple silk clippers. So they can they could be a compounding pest too at times. Right. So that is one thing to watch is if you've got that much silk clipping where you literally see them. Now once the silks are brown, it's been pollinated. So you can check that, you know, they'll, they'll a lot of times clip them after that. And that's good evidence too that they're there over threshold. If, if you grab the silk and the, the brown silks just pull right off they you know they yeah or you'll hopefully see them, by then you're already pollinated your your corn cob looks like it's got a crew cut yes it's yeah. very short then, then you know that they're so over threshold for the following year excuse me so for the yeah. corn and corn part uh but to watch them for what you can do if if you know that you got a problem is maybe while you're applying your fungicide you can add an insecticide for beetle bombing um there the the jury on beetle bombing is out i there's some people just don't really think it works that well because the beetles are kind of down in them silks and it's yeah. hard to sort of really get them. But the, the there's things to watch that if you think you are going to, you know, pollination is the most critical part that if that's going to hinder a pollination event, then you really do need to try to do what you can to stop the beetles. Uh, but as far as be there's certain, the, the efficacy out there for beetle bombing for say for the following year that you stop the beetles and then the following year you don't need sort of traits or treatment that that's not working because we don't seem to be getting enough of the population of the beetles. I mean, you do stop some and that's good to kind of maybe eliminate some of it, but to say you're going to take it all out, it, it doesn't seem to work that way. Especially like we just said the, that the females lay eggs over say three weeks. So to have that insecticide out there enough to get them over that whole time, yeah. it just doesn't work. Have you, so when you scout for rootworm beetle, and and I do this, and I'm just curious if if you get you do this too. Is like if I see one or two, and it's silking time, I'll actually start like sifting through the silks. Oh, yeah. of the corn plant as I'm walking through, just to see. Because sometimes it doesn't look as bad as as it is. You're like, oh, there's one or two that's not too bad, and then you like pull out the silk, and there's like six of them just hanging out yeah. in there. No, I I that's my favorite part actually of like is. It's like a gift under no, it's not a gift. <laughs> yes. It's the it's gift like that keeps on giving. Gift. But like a clown car. They just <laughs> right. keep coming out of that. No, you like open pie. the door and they pile out. So yeah, yes, I am you know, when you when you scout for them, you kinda of look for their presence and then I usually try to pull back, you know, fifty in a row or just a certain amount of corn cobs, you know, in each spot that I'm scouting and see yeah. what's in there for sure. Yeah, I think that is a good strategy. Yeah, they're and Really at the point of, you know, we talked about identifying the different species, but if there's enough there, it doesn't really matter I, if they're northerns or no, they're westerns. There's that, no, that, that, in that way, there's no real delineation between the two. 
and this is like my own sort of Todd threshold of, I, I don't even delineate between the Beatles and we just kind of look if there's more than about half beetle per plant we're it's threshold like especially because it's hard because it's somewhat added like we'll go one week and it's say a quarter beetle per plant then we go the next week and it's a quarter beetle per plant and then we go the next week and it's another quarter beetle like so you get to your three-quarter beetle threshold yep. but some of those times too it's like once it's sort of over you just kind of know like it's sort of it's a it's a tough threshold that way because it some of those beetles are gone through their life cycle and how do you do that so again i i feel like that this one is one where you just you either know it's over or you know it's not and you can move on and i would agree you don't necessarily worry about the different species i think we should start wrapping our scout summer scouts in fly paper we'll do the yellow and sticky traps. we should come up with a a threshold of like all right go walk this field for 10 minutes and come out and like we'll count the beetles on you I think you could mechanize this with your drone, Matt, and just have that. Yeah, but it's hard to fly through the through canopy, canopy doesn't work. with the drone. Like, that's the thing is they're usually not hanging out, like, above the tassel. They are in the ear zone, which on a given year can be anywhere from waist to over our head. And so that I will say that about certain years, too, is when you're in that taller corn Sometimes it is a little bit more difficult. Like if the cob's above your head, then you have to work harder to to really see the the beetles because they're not going to hang around in the the under leaves of the plant. Right. They're going to be around that ear. Right. Did you ever scout when we used sticky traps? I feel like we did it once or yeah. twice when I first started. Okay, but, I thought yeah. you were around. So we we there, there's a method where you can get this kind of yellow sticky trap. And, you know, either you just like put it over an ear in the field or, or hang it in some way. And then you got to replace them weekly and kind of count the beetles on them. That, that was always like helpful, but at the same time, they, it was hard because you just get all this other stuff stuck to them. You'd, um, it, it seemed like you're better off just like check, you know, to do that on the whole every cornfield, it wasn't helpful. It was helpful maybe on a few fields to kind of see the different emergence patterns while you weren't there that week. Sure. But it isn't a pest where you're going to, like, miss it completely from a weekly scouting schedule. So they are kind of – and they're not – they're, like, not baited or anything. They're just a sticky trap that um, – yeah, that's just a yellow sticky yeah, trap. Yeah, it's not like the Western Bean Cutworm or – things where we put pheromones right and attract correct. them to right. to this particular trap it's just catching whatever happens to be flying by um so yeah we we already kind of covered management but the big two rotation um so if you're in a scenario where you're going to be doing multiple years of corn on corn trying to keep that keep it minimally you know yep. two three years of of corn um Right is best. Obviously, the, you know, the further go, the higher the incidence yep. potential. So that's our number one to how to manage these is just rotation. So if you do find a big population, one of the easiest ways is go to a different crop, go to beans, go to go to alfalfa, go to wheat. So that's kind of your number one thing to manage them is that rotation. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about insecticide. Again, it's not always necessarily the best route to I, go. Right. When you, so that's also tricky too. So this is like we call it the hydra. So there's multiple yep. ways. 
to cut off the heads. One of them is this beetle bombing insecticide, but you can also use um, insecticide at the timing of planting corn and and that kind of thing. So there is other timings of insecticide too. Right. So, um, but yeah, and that that kind of leads into trading uh, using traded corn too. Obviously, corn on corn. Uh, most of the time, we're looking to use traded corn to have that above and below gr- ground protection for a number of things, but. This is definitely one of the top um, situations where we want to have that that technology. And unfortunately, um, that technology is in a position right now that it isn't working as well as it has been. And so we're, we're trying to mitigate those, um, those issues by using different traits. But um, that's why rotation is so important. Right. Is you can use the traits, but if we could become too reliant on the traits, they're going to fail at some point. Right. So... so- so there is kind of more modes of action of traits, which is good. And some of the newer ones actually have the mRNA, or excuse me, just the RNA technology, RNAi. Yes, sorry, RNAi technology. So both DeKalb with their uh, kind of it was like smart stacks for, and then the Vorseed technology through Corteva. So kind of come in with some new traits that way, which are kind of new and interesting and be interesting how those stacks of traits also where we get multiple modes of action are going to help. Right. But making sure if you, if you realize like that's where scouting is important for beetles. If you have just a disaster or if you still have corn tipping over and you use trade, you know, you use traded corn and it's still chip tipping over from rootworm problems. Like you got to, you got to do more things. Right. You got to uh, insecticides or multiple ways of combating this. So that that is one tricky part about this pest is it seems to kind of figure us out and do different things around that. So darn things adapt. Yes, nature finds a way. Yep. So one of the tricky parts of this one too that it is doing is it. We never thought it would get around rotation, like crop rotation. It likes to feed on corn. Yep. So that's kind of like a, a better whole. That's his host crop, and and when I say corn, I mean it also in the beetle stage that it likes eating the silks and just some of the yep. corn tissue. And but what we found is the they've, there's been two ways that it's gotten around rotation. So we could see it getting around insecticides or BT traits, but. Now that it's also kind of getting that it also was getting around rotation, and that the northern has an extended diapause where it it basically will lay eggs, but they won't kind of hatch the next year; they'll hatch the following year. And so that one's a tricky one because if you're a corn on bean rotation, clever girl, yes, it's like it's back and knows. So that one's tricky where you could still have a problem with that on first year corn potentially. Yep, and then they've also seen a variant that'll lay eggs in soybean fields. So it's found a way that the beetles can kind of are leaving, you know, maybe an edge of a field where you got corn on one side, they're going to the beans and feeding on bean tissue, which I did find that they didn't, the beetles weren't as healthy feeding on bean tissue, which is interesting. It's not really there. Right. But they found a way to eat that lay eggs and the beans and be there for the corn the following year. So that is one very tricky thing as well that, this pest is able to kind of adapt to rotation even. So yeah, this one just is, it's the Hydra, like we said, I mean, yep. it's literally 
we're cutting its heads off and figures it's out finding a different way. Yep. Two ways of getting us. It's it's all of that. So sounds like a great reason to try to work wheat or something else into the rotation. I, yes, do kind of break mul- up that multiple every other year. Corn you know, and, and even alfalfa. Yep, you know, a lot of our yep. dairy producers that alfalfa will do that as well. Yeah. So. All right, there you go. There's a primer on corn rootworm as we prepare for the 2024 planting season. Now we'll move into our spotlight for today. So you may have seen news articles or uh, videos on TV of farmers driving around, spreading manure in the middle of a city, dumping tires, uh, chisel plowing roads. So why are farmers protesting in Europe? Well, across the European Union, they're facing rising costs and taxes, red tape, excessive environmental rulings, and competition from cheap food imports. So demonstrations have been taking place for weeks in countries like France, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Poland, Spain, Italy, and Greece. So while many of the issues may be specific to their own country, uh, other issues span across the entire European Union. And so a number of these different issues are crossing borders in some ways and causing other issues um, for other situations, such as Ukraine is one example. Uh, Polish farmers have been blockading traffic at the Ukrainian border, which Ukraine says is affecting their defensive capabilities and helping Russia in their war against Ukraine. Um, A lot of the bureaucracy, so the EU, if you're unfamiliar, there's each country kind of has their own government, but they they share a common goal with the European Union. And so there are certain benchmarks they have to achieve and rules they have to follow across trade within these European countries because of the EU. So some of the subsidy rules um, are becoming an issue, and that's part of the reason. In Spain, farmers are complaining about bureaucracy. Uh, Greece, farmers demand higher subsidies and faster compensation for crop damage and livestock due to some flooding that occurred there last year. Diesel fuel cost is rising in Germany and France. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of these different factors that are playing into it and causing uh, a lot of the farmers to become upset and spend their time blocking roads. Uh, Like we said, spreading manure in town. The the way, yeah, the, the way Europe protests the agriculture thing is, is they are, brilliant with it <laughs> just to to yeah they just drive their tractors and you know mess with things and yep that's that's it's disrupt everyone's yeah, way of right life to get attention right so, yeah. but it did sound like from and that's hard because it depends who they're you know who the reporter gets but some of the say normal public they weren't even that upset that they were disrupt they're like no we see why they're protesting and right we support whatever. yeah yeah so but that usually only lasts so long. Uh, yes, like the, very the true. The longer it goes, the the more the you like. Come like, on, there's a fine line of that public support. Because even the first time, it's got to be cool to see just a motorcade tractor. You right. know, I, the the what what I did think was interesting about this map was the how many countries and how they're all different. I mean, there's some of similar things like cheap imports, and you know, some of them that are big, big one that maybe is tough for all of them, but 
there's an, there's enough that are very unique, like even Belgium, where it's EU requirement to leave four percent of land fallow. Yep. Like you know, just some of those are very specific. So yeah, each kind of country is battling its own its own kind of battle here, and yep. hopefully they can get a way to figure that out. It is. And I think part of the public support comes from the fact that it is a little more commonplace to see protests in, in numerous industries in some of these countries. Okay. Um, like in France in particular, like museums and stuff will shut down because museum workers are unhappy or um, public transportation workers. So it's not not out of the ordinary to see um, things like this in Europe. But, it, it again, it gets to the longevity of you know, how long does it happen and how much that, does that disruption affect those individuals right so it's fine for a little while but then you know, yeah. there's, there's that tipping point so all right now we'll move into our ag history minute well in case you missed it yesterday was a bonus day one that we get every four years so 2024 is a leap year and We're going to talk a little bit today about how leap year weather has made its way into folklore and how it potentially could affect what we see this year. So one of the more unusual folkloric weather beliefs is that leap years have an unfavorable effect. Farmers Magazine of 1816 reported that in Scotland, it has long been proverbial here that leap year never was a good sheep year. It's a nice rhyme they put in there. I like that. Uh, observation which uh, this winter has been fully realized in 1816. So rapid te- changes in temperature turned the surface of the snow to ice, causing the deaths of many lambs. Uh, 1875 in Wiltshire, Natural History Mu- uh, Magazine, mentioned that something similar as a Wiltshire pro- proverb. The writer says that although absurd, such sayings are widely accepted, and when they do occasionally come true, they are held up to admiring disciples as infallible weather guides. In Russia, leap years are supposed to be associated with extreme weather and, as a result, premature deaths. It was even said that in beans and peas planted in a leap year would grow upside down or sideways in their pods, perhaps in response to the supposed upside-down nature of a leap year. While some weather superstitions may have a valid basis... This one is highly doubtful. Leap years are a human invention and are calculated differently in other calendars, such as Chinese and Hebrew calendars. How does nature know when a leap year occurs and when to start behaving badly would be the question, and it doesn't. I mean, the whole purpose of of it in the calendar that um, is widely recognized is the fact that our rotation around the sun takes an extra quarter of a day, essentially, and so every four years to make up the difference we add the extra day in February to account for that slight variation in rotation. So I still think it's fun because it does feel like this year has an upside down nature to it. Oh yeah. Of, no, this is a wild, wild I mean, winter. Yeah. So it does have that feel of where you, where this, you could see where the folklore would come from and how, you know, people would, would have uh, equated, you know, like, especially this week it, and it wasn't, on the day, and I don't even think, say, in the eastern part of the U.S., it would have hit that way because it would have been a day early. But say that big temperature swing would have came, like, on the leap year. We dropped by 55 degrees. It would have been, you know, quite the quite the interesting, you know, feel to it. But, yeah, we'll see how 
how this leap year goes. So yeah, I think the fun side is um, people that were born on leap day are. I just saw an article, article this morning um, about I think the lady was in her eighties, and so she finally turned twenty one. Like eighty four, oh, nice. she's eighty four years 84. old, so she finally had her twenty first birthday <laughs> this year. Um, I had a teacher, my third grade teacher was a leap baby, and she I think was like thirteen or something at the time. Well, so yeah. yeah. Well, great. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to our listeners out there. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell a farmer friend. It's very easy. All you need to do is search Tilth Talk Radio on Apple Podcasts or on an Android phone. You download an app like Podcast Attic or YouTube Music. You can also listen on your computer or smartphone browser. Just go to tilthag.com slash podcast. We're also available on Amazon Music, and you can follow us on Facebook and X at Tilth Talk Radio. All right. Thanks, Todd. Now we're going to our Cool Beans. That's Courtney and Current Events. So, Cool Beans? Cool Beans. Cool Beans. Cool Beans. Oh, extra Cool Beans. (laughs) What do we do? It's hard to do Cool Beans with two people. Two people. Yeah, we need not enough Cool and Beans. All right. Well, our Cool Beans this week. The John Deere 9RX tractors are getting a boost. And so, uh, this year's Commodity Classic... The re- revelation of the new 2025 machines is continuing the march toward a future of autonomy and also the launch of the high-horsepower 9RX tractors capable of 710, 770, and 830 horsepower. Uh, so these tractors are also unique because of the lack of need for def. Uh, they've tuned the engine, so you do not have to add the diesel exhaust fluid to these new ones, which is kind of cool. That, that to me, is the coolest part. Yeah. Are they going to be able to come out with all kinds of new engines that meet those requirements without DEF? Or how, yeah, and how they're even doing that to, to meet it is, is pretty cool. So, yeah I, I, yeah, I didn't know that that would be a thing coming down the way that we that the, we'd be able to get rid of the diesel exhaust fluid. So, yeah. very cool. Uh, a few other new features on these tractors is the Gen 5 display, integrated Starfire 7500 receiver with optional SFRTK and JD-Link modem, uh, the electrical architecture for autonomy. So, even though you can still drive it, it has the setup where you could potentially make it autonomous. Uh, the new John Deere 18-liter engine, and a split hydraulic system that provides more power to implements. So, pretty cool stuff. Our That's Corny this week. According to a new Purdue report, the number of dust explosions remains unchanged. So, the number of incidents related to grain dust explosions did not decrease, or did not increase, sorry, in 2023. Our report said there was a total of nine Incidents in the U.S. last year, the same as 2022. Those nine explosions led to 12 injuries, but no fatalities. Ten-year average for grain dust explosions also remained the same at 8.4, which the university notes is a much lower than it has been in the past, thanks to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's Grain Handling Standard. Uh, the... Four states that experienced grain explosions last year were Illinois. They had three. Minnesota had three. Iowa, two. And Indiana had one. So Wisconsin had none. Woohoo! 
Uh, types of facilities that were involved were an ethanol plant, wheat mill, two grain elevators, two soybean processing plants, two corn processing plants, and one corn cob processing plant. So it's good to see that it's not increasing. Uh, it's a step in the right direction, I would say. And they have a chart here that shows kind of the... It does look like kind of a cyclical nature you had in the 90s. Things were high, then the early 2000s weren't quite as bad. Then 05 kind of jumped, 08, 2010, and then since then it's kind of been on the downswing again. So, um, but yeah, it's good. Safety's good. We don't. There's enough things on the farm that can be dangerous that we don't need to add any unnecessary risks that we can avoid. Especially so. dust exposure. Right. <laughs> like it's such a unique thing especially people not in the industry wouldn't even know what you meant like right what like what do you mean dust that, just explodes how did that just explode <laughs> but uh yeah all right well, let's wrap things up with our field good friday this week we're turning to georgia a georgia dairy farm teaches nba superstars including charles barkley how to milk a cow by hand so charles barkley shaquille o'neal and kenny smith are all part of the same uh, NBA broadcasting team, and they visited with the farmers and got to milk a cow by hand. So <clears throat> Charles Barkley told one of his producers he couldn't remember the last time he had a glass of milk, and the producers came up with the idea then to have him and his co-stars learn to milk a cow by hand. They were introduced to Madison, Georgia, dairy cow uh, <clears throat> as Caitlin... Benkoski from Big Sandy Creek Dairy Farm was tagged by several friends on Facebook for the need for animal actors. The Benkoski family knew that just the cow they could use from the farm's 80-cow herd that would perform well in front of a spotlight. Rosie, a five-year-old red and white Holstein who weighs approximately 1,300 pounds, strutted down the ramp into the TNT studio. So she weighs less than Shaq, said Charles Barkley upon meeting Rosie. Um, and they then went on to learn how to milk a cow. It looks like they put down some some hay and got some bales and stuff in the studio to, to make a whole show of it. Uh, so the whole Benkowski family, John and Julie, along with their three daughters, Caitlin, Alyssa, and Leah, lean into any opportunity they can to educate people and have good positive feedback for dairy farms. Although this opportunity was a big hit with the family, um, as Julie found herself start. Starstruck and John joked that there was no way NBA stars grew up to be as tall as they were without the help of milk's nine essential vitamins. So pretty cool experience for them. And yeah, the picture, they have a picture here of the family with all the, uh, the whole crew from TNT. And I don't even, uh, what's his name? Who's the guy with the bow tie? I can't think of his name with the glasses yeah. that, that's uh, on with those three. Like he's taller than the, all these people too. Like the whole broadcast team is well, taller than Shaq looks huge in this. Like yeah. Shaq is giant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's giant. So yeah. But it's cool. I was your do you remember I think it was my brother's class. They took a cow into like Fox Eleven. Okay. No, I didn't and did something similar. Like, <laughs> it wasn't anything. I'd remember that. That'd be hard. Like just the logistics of getting the cow there. Right, well, and then, it's clean, you know, and laying down the straw in the studio, and I'm hoping it doesn't and, crap all over the place. Yes, yeah, like, yeah, that's 
yeah. But yeah, cool experience f- for the farm. Cool experience for, um, you know, I'm sure these NBL stars who none of them have probably ever been that close to a cow before right. and and experienced milking by hand. So um, Ernie yeah. Johnson's the Ernie, fourth guy. Yes. Ernie, Ernie, yeah, kind of a could not think of his name for the life of me, but yeah, it's a fun little clip. I mean, seven minutes on YouTube and pretty like. I don't see him drinking it at the end. That'd be more fun, but yeah, they're all <laughs> the old milk's mustache yeah. shack. But yeah, whenever any like especially nationally based stuff like this highlights agriculture, that's good. That's always a good. Thing. That's yep. good. It's very good. So, all right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for being here, Todd. Thanks for having us, Matt. So this week we talked corn rootworm beetles, kind of how they move in the fields, what they do, and ways to mitigate their effect on your corn crop. In our spotlight, we took a look at why farmers are protesting in Europe. Ag History Minute, we talked leap year and the weather folklore excuse me, surrounding that. Cool Beans this week was John Deere's new tractor that does not require death. That's corny was the fact that we're still having grain explosions, but at least we didn't increase the number from last year. And our Field Good Friday was a Georgia dairy farm family teaching NBA superstars how to milk a cow by hand. Thanks for listening, and as always, happy farming.